Welcome to Grow It Minnesota, the podcast about growing fruit, vegetables, flowers, and anything else in a cold, cold climate. I'm Mary Shear, a home gardener and author of the book, The Northern Gardener from Apples to Zinnias. On this program, we talk to some of the best gardeners in the Midwest, so you can grow a more productive, beautiful garden, no matter the weather. Let's get on to today's guest. I'm welcome today to Bob Osborne of Corn Hill Nursery up in New Brunswick, Canada, and the author of Hardy Apples, Growing Apples in Cold Climates, which is just a great book for those who are really interested in how to graft apples and propagate apples and grow apples. Lots of wonderful information. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, you describe in your book, your book as an homage to apples that exist in such a wonderful abundance and diversity. And that's so true. I mean, there are thousands of apple cultivars. What is it about the apple? Is it that it's adaptable or is it that people just love it? (laughs) Uh, Actually, I think it's both. It, It is a very adaptable fruit and it grows again all the way from you find fruit growing in north africa and you find it growing in siberia and that's because it originally comes from an area in called kazakhstan mm-hmm. sort of south of russia and it grew on the mountain uh, edges there so it grew all the way from the sort of warm hot steps all the way up into sort of very cold conditions and it gave it a huge genetic diversity which uh, has over time, as it spread across uh, Asia and into Europe and across to the North America, uh, it gave it a, a, a chance to, uh, to land in many, many places and do well. I mean, obviously when it, it came across North America, there were a lot of apples that did not do well. And one of the reasons that I was interested in Northern apples, of course, is because I live in a quite a cold area, uh, similar to Minnesota, actually. And uh, a lot of the apples that I tried at first didn't grow. And so that's what got me interested in in finding out more about different cultivars, different rootstocks and so forth, so that we could we could use apples that were really well adapted to our area. Right. And so just for, for reference, are you in zone four or zone three? What zone are you in? We are in zone four. So that means originally we would sometimes get minus 40, which whether you're Celsius or whether you're Fahrenheit, it's the same. It's cold. Now, we, we, haven't, we haven't got that in the last decade or two, uh, but still it'll get very, very cold. And uh, so that, that leaves a lot of apples uh, on the wayside. Mm-hmm. It does. And actually, um, I do some work for the Minnesota Horticultural Society. And I know in your book, you mentioned Peter Gideon. And apples was basically the reason the Hort Society got founded here, mm-hmm. because people wanted to grow apples and nothing would grow here for a long time. Um, so what? tell me a little bit about your business. What does Cornhill Nursery do? Well, we're a grower of hardy perennial type material. So that means fruit trees, small fruits, uh, shrubs, perennials, anything that will live in the ground over over the winter. Mm -hmm. 
great. So it's a fairly fairly wide collection of material. Right, right. And how did you get interested in propagating and grafting apples? Well, in my former home, I went out and bought, uh, this is back in the 1970s. So I went out and bought, I think it was five or six apple trees, planted them, and they did very poorly. And part of that might have been the soil was not that great where I started. Uh, but a lot of it had to do, once I did a little research, uh, the, the, the fact that they simply were not really well adapted. So I was trying to grow Red Delicious and Jonathan's and and they simply did not do well. So it got me interested in, in looking at the various cultivars that were available and rootstocks and so forth. And then I learned how to graft. And that was, to me, a kind of magical thing where you take this little piece of wood or a bud stick it on the top of a rootstock and lo and behold, it heals itself and grows. And I just thought that this was the most amazing thing. And so I left my job as a cabinet maker and moved to my dad's farm and started to graft apples and plant them. And it just sort of uh, got out of control. <laughs> yeah. And do you think sort of the grafted apple with sort of a separate rootstock is particularly important if you're growing in a northern climate? Well, it can be very important because the rootstock is just as important in terms of hardiness as the top, uh, which is what we want to eat, right? Mm -hmm. And so virtually all apple, apple trees are combination of the rootstock below and, the, and the, the cultivar you want above. And that rootstock is important to harden off uh, apples early in the fall so they don't uh, die. Uh, from early frosts, and then to keep them dormant uh, well into the season when they can come out without being frosted. Right. So, you know, a, a rootstock is really uh, as important, really, as the top. Oh, really? And are there particular rootstocks that work well with northern apples, or do you have just a whole bunch of rootstocks you use? Well, the rootstocks that we have vary. There, there's what we call seedling-type rootstocks. So we grow mostly what we call Antonovka and beautiful arcade roots from seed. And these are old Russian apples that yield very hardy, um, sort of, oh, I'd say 65% of what would a normal standard be. And, and they impart great hardiness to, to the apple. And then we have what are called clonal rootstocks. And these are grown in... Um, what we we'll call stool beds, it's sort of specialized. We don't actually grow them here, but we buy them in. And they're grown in these stool beds where they cut them right down to the ground. You get new shoots coming up and then they cover them in sort of a sawdust uh, uh, earth mix. And then they root into that mix and then they brush, them, brush it away, snip them off and you have these clones that are identical. And these, uh, are really important to the industry because you know exactly what that rootstock will do. It will, generally these are either dwarfing or semi-dwarfing. And what they do is they, they force early production in the apple. And because they start producing fruit early, they produce seed early. And seed is where the energy is really concentrated in a tree. And so the more fruit you produce, the less vegetative growth you get. 
So it's not that they, the rootstock strangles the top or something, you know, doesn't give it enough food or water. It's more that it produces fruit so early, and that's what keeps the tree from growing large. Okay. And right now, most home growers are, are picking a tree that's, you know, a semi-dwarf or a dwarf rootstock in order to, you know, control for size, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. The disadvantage uh, of the rootstock, if it's dwarf, is that you really need to stake it for its entire life. A lot of the semi-dwarfs are usually freestanding. You have to sort of do your research and find out which ones are and which ones aren't. But that what happens if you don't stake them, they can kind of lean and mm-hmm. and so forth. And yeah. And for, for just for listeners, so a dwarf rootstock, how tall would the tree end up typically? Well, a true dwarf will be about 40% of standard. So you're probably looking at around eight to 10 feet at maturity. Right. And a semi-dwarf? Twice that like sort of 12 foot, mm-hmm. maybe up to 15. Right, right. And again, uh, pruning uh, methods can help a lot in, in maintaining the size that you want as well. Right. And actually, one of the things that your book has some great information on both pruning and oh, pests. So <laughs> <laughs> what what are some of the biggest challenges for people who are growing uh, apples for fruit in the north, in your view? Well, you know, once you, if you have a hardy tree and that you've gotten that taken care of and have fairly good sight, because one of the things that you want to make sure is that it uh, has good frost drainage, because what that means is the cold air settles on those late spring nights. And if it's frosting when they're in flower, you will, you will not get any fruit. And so a good air drainage or a lot of the commercial Orchards are located near large bodies of water or on hillsides and so forth, where you don't get that late frost. Um, But other than that, everything wants to eat apples. Uh, You have a lot of sugars in them. So the insects are very attracted to them. You have uh, fungal diseases and so forth. So growing clean fruit, uh, good quality fruit is a challenge, especially if you're trying to do it organically. Now, the, the great thing is that over the last few decades, a lot of research has been done into finding um, methods of of controlling insects that are less harmful to the environment and less harmful to us. And so there's some great new products out there uh, that allow you really to to produce clean apples. We have like, I don't know about Minnesota here, apple maggot is a big problem, what people call railroad worm. And these yeah. usually rise up uh, in early summer, usually here uh, about the July 10th or so. They rise up from the ground and they fly around and mate. Uh, and then they, what they call, sting the apples. And each little fly, is about the size of a, a house fly, can lay up to 500 eggs. And, and what they do is they'll crawl, once they hatch underneath the skin, they'll crawl through the apple and essentially ruin it. And now uh, there's products um, such as Naturalite, I think is the, the common name, and the commercial uh, name is GF120. And we tried this on our orchard this year, uh, which was always infested with maggot. And all you do is you put it in a little backpack sprayer and you kind of whip it underneath the leaves about every fourth tree. And what happens is that uh, inside this material, there's a tiny amount, 0.025% 
of what's called spinosad. And it is, uh, it is derived from um, soil fungi. Totally, totally uh, uh, organic, not, not, doesn't harm mammals at all. And what happens is that they're attracted to this, they eat it, and then they die. And so with a very small amount of material, uh, you can protect your orchard from apple maggot. Now, there are other things like coddling moth, which that's the one that, you know, you see the, the picture, the, the cartoon of the, the worm coming out of the apple. Well, that's mm -hmm. probably coddling moth. And that's another big problem. And now uh, they have basically uh, what they call mating disruptors. So in the top of each tree, uh, you put this little band and it releases pheromones for several months that attract the, the male and it gets confused and it never mates. And so, uh, you know, these are the kind of, of uh, new materials that are making it easier and easier to grow organic apples of good quality yeah and are those materials that a home grower let's say somebody with you know, i don't know three to t t 10 trees could use um yeah, yeah. and they're yeah uh, absolutely yeah right okay well that's great um so what are you know you mentioned a little bit about siting what are some of the other th important things in terms of growing apples successfully that that you can do you know either planting the tree taking care of the tree, maybe pruning the tree? I mean, what are some of the things that people need to be aware of? I think one of the key elements is the soil. And it, you really have to have your soil tested uh, to find out uh, several things. The most important probably other than drainage is your soil pH. And this, is, this, this measures the acidity of your soil. Mm -hmm. And apples like to grow in a, a fairly neutral soil. And it depends on your soils. If you have an acidic soil, which many uh, northern soils are, then you want to add uh, agricultural limestone to your soil. And what this does is it provides calcium and magnesium, uh, which hooks up with the, the hydrogen ions in, a, in an acid soil and neutralizes the soil. And without if, you, if you're growing in a very acidic soil, the apples may survive, but they're not going to thrive and they're not going to get the best quality fruit. Yeah. So pH is important. And again, drainage is absolutely critical. You never want your apples to be sitting in water. Uh, they want to, they tend to grow best in a fairly open soil, gravelly loams, sandy loams. They have a tough time if you have a very heavy clay. And particularly because it, it doesn't drain well, doesn't tend to have as much oxygen in the ground, and it doesn't have as much uh, uh, drainage. So, so those are difficult. So you have to be able to provide drainage of some kind. Right. And what about air circulation? Because I saw in the book, which I thought was really interesting, I mean, a lot of people are growing apples like espalier or growing apples very tight together. Mm -hmm. um, but you seem to advocate for a little more open, you know, that air circulation is super important in terms of growing them. Yeah, if, if you can keep your tree open to both light and air, it, the, if you have uh, really a dense tree, it tends to have fairly high humidities in the center, particularly in the center of the tree. And so you will get more fungal diseases, perhaps. Um, the, the, it's very important, too, for 
for uh, light because light is what gives particularly red apples color and mm-hmm. also uh, it matures them faster. So you always find that the best apples are always at the top of the tree and on the south side of the tree where they get most light. So you're trying to sort of increase the amount of light available to the entire tree. And if you're growing sort of a standard type apple tree, like ours are 20 by 25 feet apart. So it looks like an old fashioned apple tree. Um, then, uh, Then what we do is we do thinning. Basically we thin the branches so that it creates enough spaces between. If you're growing the on, on dwarf, particularly uh, like commercial orchards now are all being grown on dwarf stocks and they're only about a, uh, three feet apart generally. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they, they, they train a single central leader up to the top wire. And then as the branches grow out, they remove any branch that is larger than half the diameter of the trunk. And they leave a little bit of a, of a, of a when they cut off the branch, they leave a little bit on the base called a, a Dutch bevel cut. And that will provide a place for a, a new branch to go up. So you're always, it's sort of counterintuitive, but you're always taking out the most vigorous branches and leaving the less vigorous branch. And because the, these are the ones that produce the most fruit. So you have to do this on a continuing basis in order to keep the plant more open and uh, to provide uh, enough sunlight for them. Yeah. And when you say continuing basis, is that like you'll do it annually, probably in March or sometime like that? Or is it you're doing it all year long? Well, one of the interesting things that when you prune, particularly if you're if you cut back a branch in the in the early spring, you will get a reaction uh, of a vigorous new shoot coming out or several shoots maybe. So it depends on what you're doing. Generally in 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 spring, we do what's called thinning. So you're mm-hmm. you're you're taking it off to another branch or to a trunk. Uh, if you want to control growth, it's almost better to be pruning in summer. And this in northern areas would be like late July. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing when you prune in the in the summer is you tend to get a reaction by below the cut, you're going to get small branching forming that generally is geared more toward fruit production to, to create spurs. Mm-hmm. And so really that's a better way to control growth than a tree is to prune in the summer. Wow. So, you know, yeah. it really depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to make a framework for a tree, yes, prune in the, in the, in the early uh, spring or late winter, whatever, as soon as the, as soon as the temperatures don't go, you know, too far below freezing, that's the best time to prune. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we had sub-zero last, sub-zero Fahrenheit last week. So, mm-hmm. but I do yep. think a lot of people are pruning their apples now or going forward. Oh, we're, we're recording in March just for people's no, noting. And just, I'm going to double back to the issue of pH because yep. actually in urban areas in Minnesota, we actually have more alkaline soil. Yes. Uh, now mine, I have one part of my yard that's a 7.8. And one part that's a 7.3. So 
Uh, is that too alkaline or is that about right? I mean, what would that be for growing well, an apple? 7.3 probably won't be too much of a problem. But when you get to areas like 7.8 and so forth, what I would tend to do is, is to incorporate uh, sulfur into the soil. And you can buy just ground sulfur. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that that will react with the soil and form uh, sulfuric acid in a sense, and it will lower the pH. It will acidify the soil down, hopefully to neutral or slightly below. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it, that's why it's really important to know what the pH of your soil is. And you yeah. have to have that tested. You can buy kits, uh, but often like the agricultural department will have uh, some sort of system for testing soils. So. Yes, and we have that at the University of Minnesota. They'll do a soil test pretty inexpensively. Yep. So um, that when you're doing things like adding sulfur or adding lime, is that something you have to do continually or is that you do it once and done kind of thing? Well, what I generally recommend for, for if you're adding lime, um, and again, it depends on how acidic your soils are, but it takes several years to really change the pH of the soil. And what happens is that if, for instance, if you have an acidic soil and you're adding lime, at about the year six or so, uh, you will sort of plateau. And, but because we have acidic rain, uh, it'll gradually start to increase the acidity again. And so what I recommend generally is give it a dusting about every six years and make sure that it's the, the entire area around your tree, not just around the trunk, because most of your root system is actually out toward the, the, the edge of your crown. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure, for instance, in an orchard, you would, you'd lime the entire thing. And if it's in the salt, if it's using sulfur, probably about the same, maybe every six years or so. Right. Just sort of part of your basic maintenance plan yes. for the tree. Yeah. So um, I, I did want to talk about the book has great information for, for how to grow apples and disease, lots of information about all the diseases and the pests. But you also have the back end of the book is a, a, a bunch of all the northern hardy apples. And of course, being from Minnesota, I was familiar with many of the Minnesota apples. But what really shocked me is there's just so many others. I mean, so many others from, you know, from Canada, from Indiana, from all over the place. Um, so tell me about like, you know, three or four of your favorite apples that you included in the book. Well, again, I always say that I, I hate to be fa go favorites because uh, I love so many. I do point out uh, one that I think you had had a, ch a chance to, to try, and that's frostbite. Mm -hmm. uh, that has a fascinating story because it has actually been around for many, many years at the University of Minnesota where they were doing breeding work. And they used it as a, uh, as a breeder and they produced one called Keepsake, mm -hmm. which is a really lovely apple. Uh, it didn't have as that flashy look, so mm -hmm. probably never made it into the mainstream of commercial varieties. But then it turns out that Honeycrisp, which is probably the most famous apple that's ever come out of Minnesota and has saved a lot of northern orchards from going bankrupt uh, because you get about twice the, the price for uh, Honeycrisp as you any other fruit. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that uh, Keepsake is the parent, one of the parents of Honeycrisp, which means that uh, 
Minnesota, they called it Minnesota 447, at that time was the grandparent of Honeycrisp. And then so many people wanted that apple named that they had a contest. And they got 7,000 people writing in to, to name this Minnesota 447. And the winner uh, was Frostbite, which yeah. I love. I love that name. And this is an apple. It's sort of small to medium, uh, not particularly pretty in the usual sense of the word, although I, I really think that's inconsequential. But it has a flavor that what I call it, it's like distilled apple essence. So it's uh, it's sort of comparing a wine to a brandy. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a very intense flavor, uh, almost sugarcane-like kind of thing, nutty and so forth. A really wonderful apple. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the advantages of frostbite is it's also a zone three apple, right? Oh, yeah. It's the one they recommend if you live in northern Minnesota, you know, up that's the one you should grow. It does really well there. That's right. Yeah, it, it is. It's a super hearty apple and just incredible flavor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there there are a lot of uh, one of the, one of the things I'm really interested in is resistance to disease, and uh, some of the some of the new ones like Liberty. Now, you might not be able to grow Liberty in northern Minnesota, but I think southern Minnesota should not be a problem. And this is a fabulous apple if you're, especially if you're trying to grow organically. It does not get scab. It does not get powdery mildew. It is fire blight resistant. It is uh, cedar apple rust resistant. It's just the cleanest apple and beautiful form. It's, it's easy to train. And if you do a little bit of thinning so you don't uh, produce too many apples at, at once, it has good size. It keeps well and has fantastic flavor. It's actually a, a child of Macown apple, which probably are, is not grown in Minnesota, but mm -hmm. is very, yeah. very highly flavored. Yeah. And so uh, that, that's one that I really, really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And is Liberty, where was Liberty developed? At Geneva, in Geneva, New York. Okay. And Geneva has been uh, one of the most important breeding areas for apples. Uh, you have things like uh, Cortland, um, Empire, a lot, a lot of, uh, lot of uh, scab-resistant uh, varieties now are being released through uh, the New York program. Right. Um, and uh, so does it make any difference, you know, for someone in Minnesota, if it's a zone four, let's say it's zone four, so those of us in the southern two-thirds of the state, if it's a zone four apple, does it make any difference if it was developed in Indiana, where I know a bunch of apples are developed, or in New York, as opposed to in Minnesota? I think the simple answer is no, it should not. Um, although it is true that apples sort of, there are apples that seem to grow best in certain areas. And it's kind of hard to know why. Uh, because they may be hardy in both areas, but it, sometimes it has to do with soils, um, perhaps uh, weather patterns and so forth. Uh, again, length of seasons is important. Like some of the apples, for instance, um, may have hardiness, but because they're such a long season to mature, uh, they're hard to, to get to, a qual to the quality you expect from them. Uh, sort of like Golden Delicious. We grow Golden Delicious here. But it's nothing like the stuff you buy in in wash from Washington State, right? It, it you know mine has more rusting. It's uh, 
is not quite that glossy, waxy green or mm -hmm. yellow that you get. And the flavor is similar, but perhaps a bit more acidic. It doesn't have that, uh, the texture is firmer and so forth, even though they, you can grow them in both places and I've never had it high back, but it's just not the same apple. So, right. And this that's the same case with Honeycrisp. The Honeycrisps grown in Minnesota taste different, I think, than the ones grown in Washington State, which is the are the ones we tend to get in the winter. The ones we get in the fall are the Minnesota Honeycrisps, and they are perfection. The ones from Washington are, are good. They're good apples. <laughs> I have three in my refrigerator right now, but they're they're not the quite the same. No, it's true. And uh I know that in the Maritimes here in Canada, they claim that they grow the best honey crisp in the world. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that you have warm days and cold nights. Right. And if uh, uh, an apple like Macintosh, for instance, does not do well in the South, if you get sort of in toward the Mason-Dixon line and so forth, they become, they're softer. They don't have the, the crispness and so forth. And same with Honeycrisp. You need that uh, combination of, of warm days and, and cool nights to really bring, bring them to perfection. Right, right. I'd say that. I also love that you included in your list of apples um, the chestnut crab, which <laughs> yes. is one I grow. I grow that. I mean, it's like, is it an apple? Is it a crab apple? Who cares? It's really good. <laughs> So, it is. Yeah. yeah, we have we have uh, one small tree here, and uh, just just lately we've been getting crops from it, and it it's a unique flavor, mm -hmm. and uh, crunchy and uh, really really excellent. And it, you know, a crab apple is anything less than two inches in diameter. It's really they're all apples, but uh, there are a lot of sort of apple crabs they call them. Mm -hmm. uh, that have come out, uh, particularly in the north, where they were, they were having to cross with hardy crabs and so forth. So you have sort of smallish apples uh, that have been produced, like patters. There are there are a number of these uh, apple crabs and so forth, but the chestnut, I think, is is unique. It, yeah. it, it has yeah. a tremendous amount of flavor. Right, right. So, yeah, and I know also you talk about the Sweet 16, which is another one that I think it's a it's a grandchild or a child of frostbite. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a that's another one. We don't see it. I don't think it grows a lot of other places other than Minnesota, even though it's a great apple. Yeah, it, it is never there are a lot of apples like this that are they end up sort of around where they were found or where they were bred, but they never really, uh, you know, get into the, the larger commercial uh, zone, so to speak. I mean, some some like Honeycrisp have taken off, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and others like si Sweet 16 just hang around Minnesota. But you are finding, though, that as people get more aware of the diversity that's out there, um, we're starting to see like Sweet 16. I know people who grow it in Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, we grow it here now. Uh, and so, you know, these things are what we call sleepers. They mm -hmm. kind of hang around forever. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is a really good apple. It is and a really so, good apple. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you you give it to your neighbor and, and so forth. So, you know, it may turn out that in 10 years, Sweet 16 is much more popular than it is today. Who knows? So where do you see the trends in apple breeding going? I mean, what's what's coming up in the next, you know, 
10, 15 years in your mind? I, I think there's an increased uh, emphasis on disease resistance. Uh, most new breeding programs, if the apple is scabby, it's, it's not going to be released. Um, I think you will start to see more breeding work for insect resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd see very little of that now. I mean, I know some apples that seem more resistant than others to insects, but that will be something I think on the breeders uh, program. Um, one of the, I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, but one of the unfortunate things I think is that breeding programs are generally going for dessert apples. Uh, this is because we now have uh, controlled storage of apples, which can keep them in good shape right through to the next summer. Um, so uh, what's been left behind are great cooking apples, for instance, uh, you know, you know the, the keeping apples that don't need controlled storage. Um, there is a there is a real move right now to to develop more cider apples. Right. And this, by cider apples, I'm talking about alcoholic cider. Right. And this has simply exploded in popularity. Um, it kind of died out when the beer became the drink, right? right? And now all of a sudden, I know I run a small restaurant here, and for the first time, there are as many people drinking cider as beer which and wine, which is really quite amazing. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, startups everywhere that are, are using apples and some of them are using dessert apples because that's what's most available, but it tends to create a fairly bland product. And a traditional English or French cider has a combination of kind of bitters and sweets and, uh, and acids and so forth. And, and so people are looking for uh, the old, older cider apples uh, that had some of them have just almost died out, but they've been rediscovered by, Apple explorers, and uh, and people are finding new ones too that uh, have the what's necessary to create a great cider. So that's another another area that's really exploding. Yeah, and I know in your book you have a a lot of quite a bit of quite a number of apples at the back of the book that you identify as cider apples. Yeah. So that's if somebody wants to do wants to grow um, apples for cider, and we do have some cideries opening up here in Minnesota. Huh? Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Well, Bob, thanks so much for talking with me. Um, and the book again, it's Hardy Apples, Growing Apples in Cold Climates, and it uh, should be available everywhere. Oh, no. Okay. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you very Bob. much. Yeah. Thank you. Wow, that was a great conversation with Bob Osborne, a real deep dive into apples, especially for the North. So check the show notes for links to his book and other relevant information. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode.